the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with Alex Lippert. He is the co-author of After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. It's independently published and full of wisdom. I think you'll appreciate our conversation. Whether or not you're planning on retiring soon or looking forward to that day at some point in the distant future, I think you'll benefit from our conversation. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. Vice President Kamala Harris, she took her first diplomatic trip to Latin America, got off to something of a bumpy start. The plane was forced to turn around. Well, the vice president's diplomatic trip uh, going both to Guatemala and Mexico got off to that bumpy start on Sunday. Her plane was forced to return to Joint Base Andrews in Maryland about 25 minutes into the trip. Air Force Two landed safely. The spokesperson, Simone Sanders, told reporters the plane returned because of a technical issue and said there were no major safety concerns. I'm good. I'm good, the vice president told reporters after getting off the plane. We all said a little prayer, but we're good. Well, Vice President Harris' two-day trip to Central America, her first foreign trip as vice president, is part of her efforts to lead diplomatic talks to tackle what the administration describes as the root causes of the crisis at the southern border. President Biden appointed Harris in March to lead that diplomatic outreach, just as the administration was dealing with a massive surge of migration at the border. Well, the vice president is making an anti-corruption effort as well, front and center of her Guatemala-Mexico trip. And the vice president announced business investments in Central America as part of a migrant strategy. Mayorkas uh, defended a handling of the migrant crisis, claiming the border is closed amid GOP criticism. I'd like to ask the definition of closed in this context. Well, a former professor slammed a New York City psychiatrist who talked about shooting white people as unfit to practice medicine. Well, former Princeton professor Dr. Carol Swain argued on Fox and Friends weekend on Saturday, or rather Sunday, that the New York City psychiatrist who told a Yale School of Medicine audience that she had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in her way is unfit to practice medicine. She should not be practicing medicine, Swain told the host. Uh, What she says matters. There are lunatics that may be listening to her speech right now that will go out and act on her fantasy. She has planted that in someone's mind. Well, not to mention someone else. The fact that she is fantasizing about it as a professional is concerning enough from my perspective. Well, Dr. Aruna Kilanani uh, made the remarks at the Ivy League Institution's Child Studies Center in April, adding that she'd walk away from the shooting with a bounce in her step and that white people make her blood boil and are out of their minds and have been for a long time. Now, this is a broad 
racist statement that she makes rather brazenly, believing, I believe, because she's African-American, that she can do so with impunity because the narrative is under the new philosophy that black people can't be racists. Well, here we have an example of a black racist. Well, audio of the talk was posted on the Substrack um, it's an online platform of former New York Times opinion writers and editor Barry Weiss on Friday. That statement should have ended the career of that doctor because she is unfit to practice medicine, Swain said on Sunday. This is ridiculous. This is unprofessional. It's un-American. It's probably illegal and dangerous. If not, it should be. She added, but she was able to make the statement with impunity. There's no outrage. There's no uproar. There's no demand for her resignation. A black woman said she would like to walk up to any white person and shoot them in the head and is able to do so because it fits the narrative. The New York Times, uh, or rather New York City uh, shrink, told the Yale audience she fantasizes about shooting uh, white people in the head. That's the 21st century for you. Uh, a mom fight, uh, fought or is fighting an anti-white training in her daughter's kindergarten class saying they reduce everything down to skin color. That is... Uh, the direction that we seem to be headed if uh, the general population allows it. Well, in an interview panned as uh, bootlicking, CNN's uh, Stetler asked Jen Psaki to tell him what the media's, uh, media rather gets wrong. A Texas woman has been arrested for posing as her 13-year-old daughter to prove a point on school shootings. She was able to pass for her 13-year-old daughter. Hmm. Well, a Florida man threw a baby at uh, deputies after a high-speed chase. And experts say convincing science shows COVID-19 likely originated in an engineered uh, lab. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry say they're blessed with their daughter's birth. Well, AT&T and Verizon a push for free iPhones for long-term customers. And Janet Yellen says higher interest rates would be a plus for the U.S. You want to follow up on the explanation for that. President Biden's energy secretary made a startling admission about the U.S. power grid. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said on Sunday, admitting that the U.S. adversaries currently have the capability to shut down U.S. power grids with cyber attacks. Well, CNN's State of the Union anchor Jake Tapper asked Granholm whether she believed the U.S. adversaries pose a potential threat to U.S. power grids, prompting Granholm to respond, yeah, they do. I think that there are very malign actors who are trying, even as we speak, there are thousands of attacks on all aspects of the energy sector and the private sector generally, Granholm said. The meat plant, for example, it's happening all the time. This is why the private sector and the public sector have to work together, and this is what the president is doing, end quote. Well, Granholm went on to say President Biden is working with U.S. allies and countries across the world, including Russia, to prevent future cyber attacks. The president has issued issued these executive orders to make sure that our own house is in order, making sure that citizens are able to protect themselves. My mother, who is 86, she went on to say, uh, 86 years old, two weeks ago, got a cyber, not ransomware, but was hacked, Granholm said. The bottom line is we have all got to uh, up our game with respect to our cyber defenses. The president is doing that. Whether you're a private or public sector, you shouldn't be paying ransomware attacks because it only encourages the bad guys, end quote. Well, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo also weighed in on the threat of cyber attacks in the United States targeting food and gas during an interview on ABC's This Week, saying there are uh, here they are rather here to stay and will intensify in the future. It was reported this week that the Biden administration's Department of Justice had made it a key priority to target the um, uh, growth of uh, these ransomware 
efforts following the cyber attack against Colonial Pipeline last month, which caused a spike in gas prices and temporarily fueled shortages. Colonial ended up paying $5 million in ransom funds to DarkSide, a criminal group based in Russia, in order to regain access to their system. A central goal of the recently launched ransomware and digital extortion task force is to ensure we bring to bear the full authorities and resources of the department in confronting the many dimensions and root causes of this threat. That's a quote from Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco in a memo obtained by Fox News on Thursday. The White House recently said that uh, the president will meet with Russia's President Vladimir Putin later this month at the Geneva summit and will address the increase in Russia-based cyberbullying. Well, Colonial Pipeline and GameStop are hot seats. They're assuring a wild week on Wall Street. And Elon Musk hits the uh, brakes on Tesla Model S Plaid Plus production. For those of you who are anticipating purchasing one. Well, an op-ed by Senator Manchin blisters fellow Democrats over the Voting Act. From his op-ed explaining why he will vote against the For the People Act, we now are witnessing that the fundamental right to vote has itself become overtly politicized. Today's debate about how to best protect our right to vote and to hold elections, however, is not about finding common ground, but seeking partisan advantage. Whether it is state laws that seek to needlessly restrict voting or politicians who ignore the need to secure our elections, partisan policymaking won't instill confidence in our democracy. It will destroy it. You can find that op-ed in the Gazette Mail. Uh, Bonchi uh, says that that uh, Manchin is putting this marker in the ground, has the left going absolutely insane, which is to be expected. Now the civil war is going hot. Representative uh, Mondaire Jones of New York responded to Manchin by accusing him of codifying Jim Crow. Rich Lowry says the left's response, of course, is to imply uh, his some that he's some sort of racist. Well, one reporter juxtaposed a story highlighting Biden rather criticizing Manchin with the Manchin op-ed. Byron York says, given facts, uh, given the fact that one, it is very very difficult to eliminate the legislative filibuster, and two, Democrats do not control the majority of seats in the U.S. Senate. It is amazing that some Democrats and their allies are so upset about this. Why? What did they expect? You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a pollster has found Hispanics are turning Republican. According to the story, GOP pollster Kurt Anderson explained the details in a new NRSC survey of Hispanic voters in battleground states. The top line from his 34-page um, uh, slide deck, the coalition of the ascendant is descending. The proof, the two senators sitting at the table who won election in the Sunbelt state that has become substantially less white and more Republican. The moment for their multi-ethnic, multi-racial working class coalition has arrived. Republicans uh, hope and Hispanic voters are the key. Uh, they said uh, how well Marco would uh, would do because he is a Cuban of Cuban descent, Scott said, noting how Rubio won 48 percent of those votes in his 2016 race. But when I I did it, they said. Uh, well, there is something different about Florida. If you look at these uh, poll numbers, it is not. If you look at these uh, poll numbers, Hispanics across the country are Republicans. You can read more on that at Real Clear Politics online. Well, this comes as a Republican won a mayoral race in a majority Hispanic Texas town. Well, California education officials are pondering using critical race theory 
in mathematics. Proponents of new math say the, uh, uh, the way the subject currently is taught is suffused with white supremacy. They say it handicaps some minority students by insisting on what they consider racist concepts, such as arriving at correct answers. Now, let me just tell you right now, as an Oregonian, as an African-American, as a graduate of both uh, uh, of higher education, this is so incredibly insulting. And yet we're supposed to just accept this as, well, okay, I guess if it's racist to, you know, ask for a correct answer. Um, By the way, African-Americans and other minorities have been giving correct answers for decades. Moving on. Minneapolis sees days of protest after a black man was shot by a police officer. The man killed allegedly shot by a shot at police first. So this falls under the category of mindless protests. Details apparently don't matter. The ACLU is struggling with the abandonment of the First Amendment as the organization becomes merely an arm of the far left. And Florida and Alaska have joined in a lawsuit against President Biden for shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline. States involved in the lawsuit are now at 23. Meanwhile, Jimmy Kimmel calls Florida America's North Korea. Now think about that for a moment. What on earth is he uh, trying to say? First of all, it's not funny and certainly not accurate. And yet another strange left-wing hatred of all things conservative and in lieu of actual humor. You can find that on Twitter, by the way. Uh, Ariel Davidson said, I'd rather live in any city in Florida than New York City, Chicago, San Francisco, or D.C. All of them are suffering from crime spikes, homeless spikes, and just general degradation. Well, President Biden snubbed D-Day's 77th anniversary, angering veterans. He was probably distracted because June the 6th, well, 1956, was my birthday, and he probably was mindful of that and just overlooked D-Day, by the way. 65 as of yesterday. Anyway, a Homeland Security source told Fox News that service members and veterans are upset after the president failed to acknowledge the 77th anniversary of D-Day on Sunday. The sources said that the fact that Vice President Harris tweeted about D-Day while Biden tweeted about the 1921 Tulsa massacre on Sunday uh, clearly underscores the administration's priorities. Roughly 2,500 Americans died on D-Day. As a veteran, I find it reprehensible that the president ends his speech with God bless the troops, which now seems to be in words only. He blatantly forgot to acknowledge the tremendous sacrifice of our greatest generation. That's a quote from an Afghanistan and Iraq war veteran speaking on Monday. Well, a second Homeland Security source said that the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, had the perfect opportunity to mention D-Day during her CNN interview on Sunday, but failed to do so. A search through the White House website and social media turns up only two tweets from Vice President Harris and First Lady Jill Biden mentioning the day when U.S. soldiers stormed Normandy to liberate France from the Nazis, turning the tides in favor of allies during World War II. The day is typically honored by the American president. On the 77th anniversary of Hashtag D-Day, we honor the heroes who stormed the beaches of Normandy and liberated a continent. We will never forget their courage and sacrifice, the vice president wrote on Twitter on Sunday. Jill Biden also shared a D-Day message. Well, the truth is we do often forget courage and sacrifice that sustained Uh, our freedom and liberty. 77 years ago, families gathered around radios and heard FDR pray for a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. 
Let us never forget those who fought, their families, or sacrifices. Let us always pray for peace. Hashtag D-Day, the First Lady wrote on Twitter. Former President George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump all acknowledged the anniversary of D-Day in some capacity in their first year in office. Uh, President Bush commemorated D-Day's 57th anniversary in a speech uh, in Bedford, At the time, Bedford City, Virginia, in 2001, Obama traveled to Normandy, France, for the 65th anniversary in 20, uh, rather 2009. President Trump commemorated the anniversary with a tweet in 2017 and traveled to Normandy for D-Day's 75th anniversary in 2019. Well, paying people not to work, roughly 23 states have pulled out of the federal government's $300 a week unemployment bonus program, which ended up paying people more to stay home than to work. The Oregon legislature has decided to stay in the program, which has contributed to our huge 50,000 job vacancies that employers uh, cannot fill because our workers are being subsidized to do nothing. There are restaurants in Oregon that are offering $1,000 signing bonuses for cooks because the job vacancies are so serious. NFIB reported the highest number of vacancies on record. Well, the failure of paying people not to work with a $300 program is a good indicator of how the $1,000 a month universal basic income program would work if tried in America. Well, the Food and Drug Administration on Monday approved Biogen's Alzheimer's drug, marking the first new authorized therapy to treat the disease in nearly two decades. The drug, um, Aduhelm, had received mixed reviews following earlier uh, clinical trials. In a statement following the approval, Dr. Patrizia Cavazzoni, uh, director of the FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research said the agency used the accelerated approval pathway used, uh, uh, which is when the FDA approves a drug for a series of life-threatening illnesses that may provide meaningful therapeutic benefits uh, over existing treatments when the drug is shown to have an effect on the surrogate endpoint that is reasonably likely to predict a clinical benefit to patients and there remains some uncertainty about the drug's clinical benefits, end quote. Well, that was a mouthful. Well, the drug, which is the first approved for Alzheimer's since 2003, works to remove sticky deposits of a protein called amyloid beta, or rather beta, from the brain. Cavazzoni said in her statement that the clinical trials of the drug were the first to show that a reduction in these plaques is expected to lead to a reduction in the clinical decline of patients. The Alzheimer's Association called the approval the beginning of a completely new future for Alzheimer's treatments. The uncertainty surrounding whether it would uh, receive regulatory approval surrounds two phase three clinical trials. One study met the primary endpoint and showed a reduction in clinical decline, while the other did not. In November of 2020, the Peripheral and Central Nervous System Drugs Advisory Committee had said it was not reasonable to consider the clinical benefit of the drug based on one successful study. Uh, However, uh, Cavazzoni said that uh, despite not meeting the endpoint, there was still evidence of consistent and convincing reduction of amyloid plaque levels and that the advisory committee did not discuss the accelerated approval option for the drug. Um, Cavazzoni said the FDA, following the usual course of action during the review process, reviewed all relevant data as well as uh, perspectives from the patient community. In determining that the application met the requirements for accelerated approval, the agency concluded that the benefits of the drug, Aduhelm, uh, for patients with Alzheimer's disease outweighed the risks of that therapy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments, so stay with us. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the next hour, we're going to talk with Alex Lippert. He is the co-author of Afterwork, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. The book is independently published. We'll let you know how you can acquire a copy. I know I'm going to... Uh, probably dog-ear the one I have. So that's coming up at 5 o'clock, our second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. want to let you know that if you'd like to help make Father's Day extra special this year, you can enter our Father's Day giveaway, and you could win $1,000 in cash for your dad. And we've made it easy for you to participate. Just go to kpdq.com, enter the keyword father, and to increase your opportunity to win, you can enter once every day now through June the 20th. Plus, we're providing you with bonus entries. You can earn two. So enter today at kpdq.com. Again, the keyword is father. That's our $1,000 Father's Day giveaway. Well, Russian President Vladimir Putin on Monday signed a law to officially end the country's open skies treaty with the U.S. That's less than two weeks before his meeting with President Biden in Geneva. Well, last month, the Biden administration told Russia that it had no plans to rejoin the arms control pact that was abandoned during the Trump administration. Biden, the candidate, called Trump's move short-sighted. Apparently, he's gotten reading glasses and can now see that it was the right thing to do. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo tweeted last November, America is more secure after withhold withdrawing rather from the 1992 treaty. Russia remains in noncompliance with its obligations, he said, according to the Arms Control Association. Well, Reuters reported that Moscow called Biden's decision not to rejoin the pact a political mistake. The, Washington, the uh, rather Wall Street Journal's editorial board praised Biden's decision not to rejoin the pact that was aimed to build trust between Russia and the West by allowing the Accords more uh, more than three dozen signatories to conduct reconnaissance flights over each other's territories to collect information about military forces and activities. The U.S. relationship has had a strained relationship with uh, Moscow over its assertiveness in Ukraine, recent hacks and backing the Belarus presidents um, in that um, Endeavor. Well, the paper called the uh, pact a relic of the optimism that accompanied the downfall of the Soviet Union, but said these agreements only work when the parties operate in good faith, and Russia has failed to do so for some time. Well, the Fauci email fallout is continuing, and the Washington Post is slamming President Biden's Department of Justice for its unprecedented assault on the media. President Biden is taking his first foreign trip. Uh, That's coming up shortly as the vice president is on hers and the president's six trillion dollar budget cuts Navy funding. Well, the White House now backs states ending covid enhanced unemployment benefits. They now back those states. I think there are 23 of them. That's excluding Oregon that are uh, no longer going to offer those $300 a week bonuses so that people will go back to work. And the White House apparently now backs those uh, state plans. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Janet Yellen says the higher interest rates are good. For whom, I might ask, but that's a quote. Ellen, uh, or rather Elon Musk, says that he's never seen anything like the current global supply chain issues. A federal judge struck down California's unconstitutional assault weapons ban and uh, torches the media. And a girl, 15, gets the maximum sentence in a fatal Uber Eats carjacking to be released when she turns 21. Again, she's now 15. Well, on this day in history, 1769, Daniel Boone begins to explore present-day Kentucky. Now, I mention it because uh, Daniel Boone is one of Dan Rice's boyhood heroes, and he talks about him 
whenever possible. 1993, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that religious groups could sometimes meet on school property after hours. And 2018, on this day in history, NASA announces the discovery of preserved organic matter in an ancient lake bed on Mars by the Curiosity rover. Well, in the largely ignored May 11th hearing before the Senate panel tasked to report updates on the coronavirus response in the U.S., more than two hours of testimony revealed yet more of the Beltway's boundless hypocrisy. Well, it continues to matter to millions of Americans. Well, testimony was offered by Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Peter Marks, director of the Center for Biologics, Evaluation and Research housed in the FDA, and Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the Centers for Disease Control. Well, nearing the conclusion of the testimony, Senator Richard Burr got to something important. I'm going to go to Dr. Fauci, Dr. Marks, and Dr. Walensky. What percentage of the employees in your institute, your center, or your agency of your uh, employees has been vaccinated? Now, one would assume the answer would be high because these are the insiders. They know the science. They know what they've been telling the public. Well, based on the nonstop cable news COVID coverage with a major uh, emphasis on get the shots in your arm, along with President Biden's major push over the next um, a month to have 70% of adults vaccinated by the 4th of June. Didn't quite reach that. That's been pushed back. One might expect that the answers would be, well, points of pride for these health leaders. Now, remember, media outlets get most of their information about this crisis when they're not citing each other, that is, from the um, NIAID, the FDA, the CDC. We're all vaccinated would be encouraging to Americans to consider following suit. Well, instead, Dr. Fauci had to respond, I'm not 100% sure. Senator and is not requiring it, so we don't know. Well, interestingly, these comments mirrored the public's response, as noted by President Biden last week or a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, in his declaration for June to be a, nat- a national month of action, the president cited the CDC data that 52.8 percent of U.S. adults had been fully vaccinated, including 75 percent of seniors and the most vulnerable and likely to succumb to the virus. Well, his multi-tiered plan to raise those numbers involves education, incentives and greater availability of vaccines in non-healthcare venues. Uh, but pay attention to the numbers. Well, the American public has responded in large part by wisely talking to their healthcare providers, their families, and making personal decisions on the uh, on the vaccine. There are roughly 140 million adults with COVID protection due to the vaccine, and another 30 million with a single shot of uh, uh, the two dose regime. There are uh, there's some overlap rather between infected and vaccinated, but more than 30 million Americans have had COVID, meaning they have some natural immunity. Now, well, as the CDC director noted in her response, those who are in charge of COVID response are making the same choices about the COVID vaccination as the general public. Social media, however, caught fire when um, Breaking 911 posted an inst- on Instagram about the hearings revelations, framing it in this way. Uh, new, about 40 to 50 percent of CDC, FDA employees are refusing the COVID-19 vaccine, according to Fauci. Marks. Of course, the fact checkers sprang into action to clarify that no such comments were made. And while getting a false declaration from PolitiFact and similar coverage at Reuters and USA Today, the math still pretty much adds up. If around 60 percent, and that was a guesstimate, have been vaccinated in these agencies, according to their leaders, then around 40 percent have chosen not to be vaccinated after six months of free vaccines available nationwide. So we can quibble about the meaning of refusing or we can get the general gist of the math. 
How does Biden, the president, plan to increase these numbers? Incentives. He praised the state of Ohio for its Vaximillion promotion for those vaccinated to sign up to win one of five one million dollar drawings, as well as Anheuser-Busch's Let's Grab a Beer promo uh, that involves the things that motivates our current culture most, taking pictures of themselves at their favorite hangout and getting free alcohol. Once America reaches the 70 cent uh, percent mark uh, of that's the number of um, those who have the uh, the vaccine shot uh, in the arm, uh, the king of beers will buy America's next round to celebrate. Well, other states and businesses are offering similar incentives as vaccination rates fall uh, to uh, much lower rates per week. Well, the federal health care bureaucracy has earned mistrust over the last 18 months uh, because of embracing um, partisanship and tactics of shaming instead of relying Uh, uh, relaying dispassionate and essential information for individuals to use to make informed decisions. Senator Burr's closing comments to those um, lettered experts summed it up as well as anything uh, that we've seen. We're going to have to start portraying that we're willing to do to ourselves what we're asking the American people to do. And thus far, that has not been the case. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Next hour, we'll talk with Alex Lippert, co-author of After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. It's independently published and we'll let you know how you can acquire a copy. I think you're going to want one. Well, Victor Davis Hansen, uh, referring to Saul Alinsky, wrote a headline recently, Never Let a Plague Go to Waste. And he writes that during America's first ever national lockdown, thousands of unelected bureaucrats, as well as federal and state governments, assumed enormous powers not usually accorded to them. They picked and chose which businesses could stay open without much rationale. They sent the infected into nursing homes occupied by the weak and vulnerable. Their rules for uh, prosecuting those who violated social distancing, sheltering in place, mask wearing or violent protesting often hinged on political grounds. Their spending measures on infrastructure and health care were excuses to lard up redistributive um, entitlements. Conservatives moaned that left-wing agendas were at work beneath the pretenses of saving us from the pandemic, and the giddy left bragged that it was true. Well, after the 2008 financial meltdown, Barack Obama spoke of fundamentally transforming the country. Well, now he's back weighing in on the panic-driven multi-trillion dollar spending that has pushed America's debt to nearly $30 trillion. Well, there's a teachable moment about maybe this whole uh, deficit hawk thing of a federal government, Obama said in a recent interview with Ezra Klein of the New York Times. Just being nervous about our debt 30 years uh, from now, while millions of people are suffering, maybe that's not a smart way to think about our economics, end quote. Well, he apparently needs um, uh, means that borrowing tons of money in a pandemic and not worrying too much about paying it back is new, better approach to economics. Well, last year, California Governor Gavin Newsom boasted about leveraging California's statewide quarantine. There is opportunity for reimagining a progressive era as it pertains to capitalism, Newsom said. So, yes, absolutely, we see this as an opportunity to reshape the way we do business and how we govern, end quote. Hillary Clinton said something similar early in the pandemic. Uh, This would be a terrible crisis to waste, as the old one says. Uh, We've learned a lot about 
what our absolute frailties are in our country when it comes to health justice and economic justice, end quote. Well, the old saying she cited was actually a recycling quote, or rather a recycled quote from Rahm Emanuel, who was Obama's chief of staff. His exact quote was, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. Later, Emanuel clarified that crisis allowed radical changes that would never be considered or were considered impossible. Without catastrophe, no one in his right mind would vote for far-left agendas. Well, manipulating COVID-19 is not just a left-wing effort. The Davos crowd, responsible for the World Economic Forum, has talked of using the global crisis to push the Great Reset. Well, these self-appointed guardians wish to create global rule governing the world's economy, energy, transportation, education, climate, wealth distribution, and media. Uh, in other words, a few elites will seek to override local laws. Well, what do all these efforts have in common? One, They're all top-down agendas. Polls show that average Americans are worried about massive borrowing. They fear the government gaining new powers under the pretext of a pandemic. Two, our elites are anti-democratic. They talk of forcing change down the throats of citizens through edicts, executive orders, court decisions, or bureaucratic directives. Obama, Newsom, Clinton, and the great resetters don't want to, uh, uh, to put up their agendas for discussion before the people and their elected representatives. Three, behind fancy slogans about not wasting crises, teachable moments, and resets is the panic porn reality that these initiatives are not popular in normal times because they defy common sense. If Americans tried Obama's economics uh, with their family budgets, they would go broke or go to jail after piling up unpaid debts. Only elites with their private security guards and money and influence to remain safe talk of defunding the police. Few of the woke elites who fly their carbon spewing jets into Davos ever fly economy class. Number four, our rich revolutionaries have no record of policy success. Massive borrowing, increasing government powers, restrictions on personal freedoms, higher taxes and more regulations don't appeal to most Americans. Brexit and pushbacks against the European Union suggest that the same is true abroad. While many members of the left-wing elite become wealthy by monetizing their political careers through lucrative insider networking. A sink might, um, and that's an ex, a cynic rather, uh, might conclude that uh, they didn't go full reset until they first got to rich, allowing them not to live like, well, think like, or listen to the rest of us. So not allowing this crisis to go to waste may mean big changes in the future. Well, looking for the silver lining in all of this, COVID-19 could actually help working women. Women have come a long way in the labor force. Much of women's gains have consisted of steady progress in education, labor force participation, and earnings. But historical events have also played a role, including the surge in their labor force participation during World War II. Responses to COVID-19 pandemic might mark another such event for women's progress. A silver lining of the devastating virus might be a leap forward in flexible jobs and family-friendly workplaces that women have been working decades to achieve. Well, coupled with the added use of technology brought about by the pandemic, the so-called gender pay gap might decline and women will likely have more opportunities that appeal to their desires. That might seem counterintuitive since women initially experienced more job losses and disproportionately had to cut back on work to care for children whose school and daycare 
uh, facilities were closed. But now that women have largely recovered relative to men, they may be poised to experience significant gains in the labor market. Why is that the case? Well, consider what happened during World War II. The exodus of working men to fight in the war required employers to seek women to fill their workforces, causing a permanent jump in women's work opportunities and earnings. Similarly, the health risks of um, close physical contact during COVID-19 forced employers to adopt remote work technology and school and daycare closures required employers to become more accommodating to employees' personal and family uh, solutions. Well, many of the changes in remote technology and family-friendly policies necessitated by COVID-19 will stick around for the long haul. In particular, employees or rather employers are likely to keep in place um, flexible and remote work options, both because many of these policies uh, haven't hurt and might have even helped their productivity. And because if they fail to meet employees' desires, they won't be able to attract and retain the workforce they need. Well, to date, one of the biggest explanations for why women writ large make less than men is that women, namely mothers, desire fewer hours and more workplace flexibility. Well, oftentimes women give up higher level positions that require a lot of time in the office for less demanding positions that given the uh, they give them rather the flexibility to spend more time at home. Well, as employers increase flexible work options, it's less likely that women who uh, have a greater preference for such options will have to give up as much uh, pay to achieve those options. Men will also have the added flexibility to take on more household duties, potentially easing women's caregiving duties and making it easier for them to pursue their work desires. Well, Harvard economy uh, professor Claudia Golden is well known for her research on gender differences in the workplace and in the labor market. And she attributes some of the largest pay gaps to the ease of substituting any one uh, worker in a given occupation for another worker in the same occupation. Pharmacists, for example, can easily substitute for one another and there's little pay gap among them. Conversely, doctors and lawyers fill unique roles in serving their individual patients and clients, making it harder to substitute one for another. Yet COVID-19 may have increased substitution capabilities and even some of the most demanding jobs like medicine, where telehealth has become more widespread and increased digitization of records, making it easier for one doctor to take over for another. Well, as this trend continues across industries, the high costs associated with shifting between workers to allow for less demanding hours should shrink further leading toward pay equity. So again, a possible silver lighting. While government responses to COVID-19 softened the initial blow for both men and women's employment and income losses, it's largely been the lifting of government-imposed restrictions and government-imposed school closures that caused women's employment and earnings to bounce back relative to men's. Well, that suggests that less government, not more, is the key to improving opportunities for women in the workforce, both immediately and in the future. An interesting perspective of uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic that left many working from home or not working at all. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, I'll have a conversation with Alex Lippert. He's the author of Afterwork, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Retirement. I'm looking forward to retiring at some point, and I think most of us are, but how do you go about it? While working with numerous clients over the years, 
My next guest and his co-author, Joel Malik and Alex Lippert, they began to see a pattern. Lots of people were well-prepared financially, but pretty ill-prepared in other critical ways. Well, the authors of After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams, they say purpose is central. Many people work their entire lives longing for retirement. Once they arrive, they find something missing. Well, the pair, they believe there are 10 essential keys to consider. We're going to talk about them. Well, the cornerstone habits offset what they refer to as the sugar rush of retirement. This is that honeymoon period of euphoria after retirement that quickly fades. Well, the pursuits of purpose, faith, deepening your connection with others, a hunger for learning, experiencing the new, uh, rekindling a sense of awe in your life and practicing generosity, all these Um, are uh, in their own unique way, combat the strong societal pressure we face. In the end, what will be important? Well, I'm just delighted to talk about this book. Yesterday, I celebrated my 65th birthday. And while I'm not quite ready to, in quotes, retire, this book has really got me thinking because I want to be, I want to have a meaningful and purposeful end of life experience. So I'm grateful. Alex Lipper joins us. He's one of the co-authors. He's a partner with Steadfast Wealth Company in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He joined the financial services industry in 2010. He earned his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Puget Sound. Uh, double majoring in international business finance and in Mandarin Chinese. Uh, He enjoys cooking for family and friends, fly fishing, uh, trail running, and is a beekeeper. I wish we had time to talk about that. Well, he and his wife love adventuring with their daughter, Goldie, and their rescue pup. But today we're going to talk about that end-of-life experience we all look forward to but may not plan well enough for retirement. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alex. Yeah, thanks. Really happy to be here and happy belated birthday to you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I love the title of your book, and because of my stage in life, I was immediately interested, but I really think it should appeal to people much younger and those who are older than I am. Again, the title of the book, After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. Let's begin with the retirement lie, because I think most of us embrace that lie without really giving it much thought. What are we mistaken about when we think about life after work? Yeah, so the retirement lie is that a selfish withdrawn retirement is a good one. I think our society uh, continually feeds us this narrative of, you know, sail off into the sunset and, you know, live the good life, quote unquote, live in the dream, you know. And I think the dream that society feeds us constantly is that. You know, as soon as you reach this certain level of assets where, you know, your investments or your rental properties or whatever they are can essentially sustain your life financially, you no longer need to be engaged. You no longer need to be plugged in. Um, You can essentially just go off and vacation for the rest of your life. And uh, for most of us, you know, that sounds great right now just because we're all kind of in the middle of life's mayhem. You know, we have demanding careers and we're raising children and we're doing all these different things. Um, And there's a shortage on time right now. But as soon as we have, um, you know, that huge amount of time that retirement equates to, a lot of us become lost. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, you provided some some glimpses into what retirement life is for many people who haven't perhaps given the kind of thought your book recommends. Average retiree watches uh, 49 hours of TV a week. Divorce rates 
uh, have uh, slowed across the uh, board except for 50 plus. More than 6.5 million Americans aged 65 and older are dealing with depression on some level, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And during working years, the average American has seven hours per day outside of sleep and work. In retirement, That's more th- that more than doubles to about 15 hours of free time. Uh, if we don't think about uh, life after work, we're likely to fit into that sort of category and sort of meander our way to the end of life without much meaning. Correct. Yeah. The the uh, the deeper down the rabbit hole, uh, Joel and I went on this on this topic. The more and more we just discovered, this is a serious issue. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's one of those. Um, a lot of times it's unheard of, you know, so many people think that this is going to be a time of just endless bliss and I just need to get there to reach it. Um, and so it's kind of a quiet suffering situation. I mean, most people, if you ask them, how's retirement, their initial response is things are going great, you know, but as you continually dig deeper and really get into the substance of, you know, what, you know, what's their day to day, what are they actually doing that's kind of a purpose center in their life? A lot of times you'll end up at the conclusion of, man, they're actually having a really tough time, but nobody you know, is supposed to feel that way. So mm-hmm. it's really weird to finally show up after this career at retirement and be like, okay, now it's time to really enjoy life. And you're like, wait, why am I not enjoying this? And so we, we wanted to explore that as deeply as possible in this book. And we both felt called to write it. So here we are. Well, I certainly uh, appreciate it. Now, what are the major changes in our thought process as we grow older? I think that, you know, it's really interesting when you eventually, quote unquote, retire, you're at this culmination of accumulation in your life. And what I mean by that is you've got the most time that you've ever had in your life from that point on every day. You've got the most wisdom, the most experience that you've ever had in your life. And presumably, you have the most resources, um, financial and otherwise. And so, you know, it's really a tragedy for for people at that kind of culminating point in their lives to not put all of that amazingness to use. I mean, you've got so much potential there to make a huge impact um, on the world around you, on your community, on your own legacy kind of long term. And so I think you know, as you approach retirement, obviously your relationship with time is going to change drastically. It's kind of like the, you know, the dog chasing the car down the road. The dog doesn't know what to do if it actually catches the car, right? But the dog just thinks that it wants the car. And it's the same thing with us about time. I mean, we all think in our busy lives that we, that we just want more time. But once we get it, we can find that, oh, wow, I actually need to you know, find fulfillment in this swath of just free time that I have every single day. You know, you find yourself waking up on a Wednesday morning, sleeping in, and if your calendar is completely blank the rest of the week, and you've accomplished all of the home projects that you wanted to do, and taken a lot of vacations, and, you know, done all of those things that are kind of the immediate sugar rush stuff that you've always wanted to do immediately in retirement, you can absolutely just, you know, lose yourself, and feel like you're no longer you anymore. So we're trying to avoid that with the book. Yeah. Now, in your work in financial planning, what kind of regrets do people often express uh, in the area of finance and perhaps beyond? Yeah. So 
we use a lot of stories in the book that are mm-hmm. real client stories, uh, but we, you know, change the names and some of the details. So to keep the gist of the story uh, true to the story, but obviously we don't want any of our clients for good or for bad, you know, just feeling bad about it. Um, but, you know, there's just uh, so many folks that kind of get down the path of retirement and they look back and they feel like they don't have a lot to show for it. You know, um, you can sure go golf a lot. You can take a lot of vacations. You can do all of these things like that, that are fun. And we don't want to discourage that. I mean, retirement is a fantastic time to go and enjoy that flexibility, the freedom to go do stuff that you really want to do and have a lot of fun. But I think, you know, that has to be kind of the garnish on the plate and not the entree. Um, But a lot of folks look back on retirement and it's just kind of a blur. It's just a blur of golf and happy hours and all these fun things, but there's not a lot of true victories. And I think one of the themes in our book is that, you know, true challenge actually brings true results. So you really have to challenge yourself. You really have to put in, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears in order to really have this impactful, fulfilling outcome that you want to see, whatever that outcome is. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but I'll continue my conversation with Alex Lippert. He is the co-author of After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Alex Lippert. He is the co-author, along with Joel Malik, of After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. You draw a distinction between happiness and meaningfulness in the context of the retirement years. Uh, explain the difference and how that can uh, elevate our, our period of post-work uh, to a level that makes life worth living. Yeah, really good question. I think we all are convinced that we're seeking happiness, but I think happiness is a lagging indicator. It's, you know, something organic that kind of comes from within when you're being fulfilled. And so I think we all chase happiness, but we're really chasing fulfillment and a meaningful existence. And so I think, you know, for me personally, when I'm, you know, leaving a really demanding day of volunteer work or in, you know, my daily job as a financial planner, when I, when I know deep down that I really truly impacted somebody's life trajectory um, and it was very material, you know, I changed the course of their life financially. Um, those types of things are fulfilling to me. And I feel like happiness is a byproduct of that. And so I think we need to focus more on meaning and fulfillment in our lives and less on happiness because happiness will be a natural byproduct of being fulfilled. And so I think our society creates a lot of misnomers out there, like, you know, just watching commercials or, you know, just things online. And it's, you know, like the Instagram life or whatever. I don't have an Instagram, but I've heard of the Instagram life. And, you know, it's the best car, the best house, fantastic vacations, you know, great at golf, great at tennis. I mean, you just go down the list and there's all these things that I think people envision, you know, creates happiness and all that stuff is, you know, can be fun and can be enjoyed. 
but I think it's really not fulfilling. That's just kind of the window dressing. And so you really have to dig deep, figure out, you know, what fulfills you truly, you know, what do you finish and you say that was good work and you're going to be happy because of that good work, I think. I love the illustration you used earlier that that should be the garnish on the plate, but not the, <laughs> but not the entree, not the main event. Yeah. Uh, and that's such a, g- a great picture of how we kind of order the abundant time that retirement often brings. Now, you encourage uh, readers to look at our lives and choices backward from the end of life. Now, how does this work to alter our perspective? Yeah, in the book, we discuss um, having a reverse legacy discussion with yourself. So having a deathbed conversation with yourself, but doing it now, um, you know, would you say on your deathbed, I wish I would have played one more game of pickleball hmm. um, or watched more news or, you know, played more golf um, or would you say something else? Like, I wish I would have spent more time with the grandkids or helped out, you know, helped my children more or you know, made an impact with a nonprofit or founded a nonprofit, or, I mean, you can just go down the list. And I think if you have that deathbed conversation with yourself, you begin to delineate between what's truly important in life and what's not, you know, I mean, I can't personally, I can't really remember, you know, out of the last 10, just kind of family get togethers where we all just got together at our house, shared a meal. I can't, you know, with very much description, describe kind of all of those 10 family lunches. I absolutely love my family. We have an amazing relationship and we spend a ton of time together, but I think it all just kind of blurs together. But when I've undertaken a volunteer day with my family, you know, and, and like we've all spent a ton of time working together hard and being challenged together, I can vividly recall every single one of those types of endeavors that I've done with the same group of people that I have the same relationship with. And so I think that's another way to kind of frame this reverse legacy discussion with yourself is, you know, what is, what is true and lasting in your life and what is going to be a memory where, you know, maybe you reach your deathbed one day and you're having this conversation with yourself at that point in time too. And you say, wow, I mean, I really don't have that regret. I feel like I've lived a good life. And um, in doing that, I think you'll live a fulfilling life. You'll help others be fulfilled. And you'll also not, you know, reach kind of the end of the road filled with regret, like I think a lot of people do. Mm. That's so interesting because yesterday was my 65th birthday and I spent a couple of hours at the bedside of a dear friend, um, an older woman who adopted me as her daughter years ago. Um, And she was on her deathbed and we talked about legacy and looking back over all that she had accomplished in life, not just during those working years, but beyond. And she was surrounded by her family. And what a what a wonderful picture to think about that day will come. Um, and to think now backward is uh, seems like such a productive way to prepare for those latter years. Now, your book highlights 10 vital keys to consider for retirement. Now, what are a few of these vital keys? Yeah, um, and that's just an amazing story, by the way. Uh, I think that that's, that's a beautiful thing to be mm-hmm. reminiscing on somebody's legacy on their deathbed and just know that they have made an impact and, you know, done all of these amazing things in there in their life journey. Um, before I answer your question, I just also want to bring up one other thing. Please. There's a concept in the book um, called the dash, and it connects with the reverse legacy discussion. And 
it's interesting because all of our tombstones one day will have a dash, right? The date of our birth and the date of our passing. And that dash is really interesting because it's just a dash on a tombstone. But you have to ask yourself, you know, as you look at the dash of our lives, can you honestly say that we leaned in until the end and had a marvelous adventure? You know, what does that dash actually equate to? And I think that's worthy of some reflection. For sure. Absolutely. I wonder, too, um, we live in such a youth obsessed culture. If we're sometimes intimidated at the thought that we might be productive, useful members of society with influence and live a meaningful life, when the, the message seems to be in some quarters anyway, that the older you get, the less use you are in general. I think that the, you know, the idea kind of that permeates our society is if you're retired, you're a has been, you know. <laughs> Um, I've actually heard a number of retirees that I work with that I know well say, you know, people used to ask me, what do I do? Now they ask me, how do I fill my time? And it's just so funny to think, you know, why are retirees, you know, considered time fillers? They're the ones that have all of the tools to make the most impact in our society and on people's lives. And I think if you grab a thesaurus and you look up synonyms for the word retire, it's, it's super interesting. Um, you come across, you know, words like recede, withdraw, retreat. And so it's such a curiosity that so many people in our society, you know, like one of their sole aspirations is to retire when all of those synonyms just sound terrible to me. <laughs> yeah, <You know? laughs> that's a very good point. Um, again, I want to ask you to highlight some of the vital keys uh, to consider. You you highlight 10 vital keys that we should consider for, lack of a better word, those retirement years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so we go, we go down the list and we wanted to be very, very thoughtful from our experience with our clients and in our own lives for, you know, what are the dominant keys and they're all cornerstone habits and so i think i can start there and what that means is there's certain disciplines in your life where if you integrate them into your life and you stay you know disciplined and um, you continually kind of cultivate them that they'll create um, a better situation in other areas of your life that you didn't think you know so an easy one i think is movement we didn't want to use the term exercise because a lot of people don't have a high affinity for exercise, mm-hmm. um, right? But being active and moving. I mean, if you end up, you know, taking walks every day and staying active, I mean, you're going to see huge benefits in all other aspects of your life. Yeah. Um, you know, not only your physical health, but your mental health, your connections, all of these different things. And so I think all these different keys that we discuss are really cornerstone habits in and of themselves where, you know, we don't expect readers to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to implement all 10 of the keys immediately um, and just be fulfilled from day one, right? I mean, it, it's all a work in progress. It's all a, we're trying to be better tomorrow than we were yesterday. And we're not comparing ourselves to anybody else because we're all so unique, um, you know, but clearly kind of the, the centerpiece of the book is uh, purpose, and um, that chapter's, you know, really in depth on a lot of different kind of perspectives on yes. purpose. But one of the main takeaways, I think, is that hunger is so much more important than skill. 
You know, you can be a very successful person in your career, but if you step away and you withdraw, you're not going to be fulfilled based on your past level of purpose and engagement and fulfillment. I mean, you really have to stay hungry in retirement and move forward. Um, there's this um, story in the book that we use about Stephen Francis and the Jamaican track team. And we all know that the Jamaicans are um, fantastic track track athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, this author and reporter that was, you know, visiting the Jamaican uh, track team uh, showed up where he was supposed to meet the coach and he was blown away because the whole place was in shambles. It was an old field, you know, um, it wasn't this kind of this high tech, you know, luxurious training facility that the person had foreseen. And the coach had a really interesting take. He basically said that I want people to come here hungry and be able to get through this, you know, kind of this minimalist, really challenging environment, because that's where the true winners kind of emerge out of. So you don't really get the true winners if they're living a life of luxury and they're not hungry. And I think that applies to all of us in life, just in general, um, is, you know, we all need to be trying to better ourselves um, in any way possible every day um, and improve. And so great illustration. That's part of the purpose. Yep. I need to take a break, but uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Alex Lippert. He is the co-author, along with Joel Malik, of After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Alex Lippert. A great book, After Work, is the title, An Honest Discussion About the Retirement Lie and How to Live a Future Worthy of Dreams. Now, let's re- rehearse again uh, what the retirement lie is and why it's important to be intentional moving uh, out of the work life into that period that follows in a meaningful way. What is the retirement lie? The retirement lie is that a selfish and withdrawn existence in retirement is a good one. Um, and that, you know, you're going to sail off into the sunset, not have a worry, not experience life as you, as you have in the past, you know, life is not going to be glorious every single second. And we all kind of see this mirage on the horizon of retirement being that endless vacation. But in the end, you really can't take a vacation from a vacation. So your life cannot be a vacation 100% of the time. You need to stay engaged. Um, and you need to really lean in and try to make an impact. And if you do that, then I think you will be able to enjoy all of the fun aspects of retirement. You encourage people um, not to burn energy on things they can't control because as we age, there are, are things that are out of our uh, ability to control. Why do you make that point, particularly during that period following work? Great question. I, I think... Um, the control thing is really interesting because we as humans, we really freak out if we can't be in control, you know. Um, and I think we all can can find stress in so many aspects of life. I mean, you just turn on the news, read the paper, and the headlines are just daunting. And you just wonder, how does our world not just fall apart every day based on the headlines? I mean, mm-hmm. it can be really just fear-filled scary. You know, there's so many things to worry about out there. But the point is, is you're literally just a hamster kind of turning the wheel. 
and you're not, you know, making progress in your life by worrying, by being fearful, by trying to control things that quite literally you have no control of, you know, like the stock market, like the news cycle, like, you know, what's happening in China or the Middle East. I mean, you just go on and on, you know, with our politicians. And I think um, one of the doorways to finding purpose and fulfillment in your life is really trying to turn off that noise, you know, that's constantly permeating everything. You know, our entire existence now is dependent on technology. You know, we all have supercomputer smartphones in our pockets, you know, that are more powerful than the computers that, you know, send the Apollo missions to the moon. Yes. <laughs> um, and so we constantly are inundated with news, with opinions, with all of these different things. And that can literally just take over all of your mental capacity for growth for, you know, progress in your own life. And so you really need to be able to dial down that noise um, and focus on things that you, that, that you can control. Um, you know, you can't control the news, but you can control your reaction to the news, you know? Um, and so you just go down that kind of list in your mind and, and ultimately you land at a spot where you realize, you know, there are a few things for certain that I can control in my life and I'm going to control those really well. And most of what I'm inundated with, I cannot control. So I'm not going to try to control it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I used a, a quote uh, that you provided uh, earlier in the program about the rate of divorce among couples approaching retirement and following um, and you also write about loneliness, the impact that loneliness has and can have during those years. Can you talk about the need for community and relationship during those uh, post, uh, those that after work period? Yeah, loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day to one's health, um, mm. said a very large um, research project done by Cigna, the large insurer. Um, and so. That's obviously a problem, I think, for a lot of retirees. And sometimes that's completely out of their hands. I mean, a spouse passes away, um, you know, and they're not going to be remarried or anything, and they feel lonely. And so I think, you know, for, you know, those widows or just in general, I think the idea is, is to really lean in with your connections. And um, we also looked at other research um, on just connections and relationships, and we put this in the book, but what they found is it's not about the number of relationships you have. You know, it, it's not about you being a social butterfly. You know, I'm an introvert, which is funny because I'm being interviewed on a radio station, um, <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, it's really about the depth of your relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not like you need to go out and be a social butterfly, but those relationships in your life that are meaningful to you, how can you kind of step into those further? How can you develop those relationships further and have a deeper, more meaningful relationship? And I think by doing that, even if there's only a few people in your life or one person that's, that you feel like you really want to do that with, I think that's going to bear a lot of fruit for you down the road. I think a great quote. Uh, by Robert Louis Stevenson kind of rings true to this discussion, but um, he's the author of Treasure Island um, and a poet. And he mm -hmm. said, don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. And I think relationships and combating, you know, loneliness and depression and, and all of these kind of pitfalls of retirees 
Um, the key is to really focus on all of the seeds that you're planting, you know, because the harvest comes later. Yeah. You know, like the farmer's not out there planting a seed once and then they don't reap the benefits every year thereafter for all eternity. I mean, they have to go out and plant the seeds every year. And so it's a continual progression that you have to have in your life, you know, a continual level of effort that you have to be there trying to cultivate these relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And for the record, I'm an introvert as well, and I host a radio show. So go figure, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. (laughs) You include a chapter on faith, and we're just about out of time, but I didn't want to miss talking about the role that faith can play in a uh, retiree's life. Yeah. C.S. Lewis had a great quote. He said, faith is a habit. We must be continually reminded of what we believe, and it must be fed. And like any of the other tenets, you know, it is something that needs to be cultivated in your life. You don't just wake up one day and open up a Bible um, and say, okay, I'm faithful, right? I mean, it's a process. And all of us as humans, uh, we have this internal division in our lives, you know, where we have, you know, that devil on our shoulder and the angel on our shoulder, you know, that whole visual. And the devil is extremely loud, much louder than, than, than the small little angel on your shoulder. And so, The devil tells us, you know, feed me because time is almost up. And as humans, we see, you know, the clock ticking, you know, maybe we're 65, maybe we're 85 and we're saying, oh man, I have less time ahead of me. And so, you know, a lot of us tend to scramble to try to fill that void, um, you know, with things that create happiness, like some of the items that we discussed earlier in the show. Uh, But I think you can't fill a bucket that has holes in it. You know, the more you put into it, the more it just spills out the bottom and it, and it will never be full. And I think faith is one of those things that, you know, your values and your faith, I think that's one of the things that plugs the bucket and actually leads you to be more, more fulfilled long term. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the book and will be referencing it in the days ahead. Again, the title is After Work, An Honest Discussion About the Retirement Lie and How to Live a Future Worthy of Dreams. This uh, book is published independently. How can our listeners uh, acquire a copy? Yeah, we've got a landing page website. It's www.theafterwork.net, or you can find us on Amazon. .net. I'll make sure I put that on our Uh, assets pages so that our listeners can find that. Uh, Alex Lippert, thank you so much for talking with us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks so much. It was nice to meet you. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, after a year of enormous change and challenge, the U.S. Supreme Court is entering its final week of the term with several hot-button cases yet to be decided, and speculation over one of its longest-serving justices. Well, June is typically the busiest time for the nine-member bench as they work to release rulings from their docket, including issues dealing with religious liberty, then LGBTQ rights, health care, college sports, state voting rights. Uh, the high court's been faced with uh, operating remotely because of the pandemic and having new Justice Amy Coney Barrett come aboard just uh, days before the presidential election following the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, and despite calls from supporters of then-President Trump to get involved, the justices deftly avoided having to repeat the 2000 Bush versus Gore dispute. They kind of uh, kept their head down collective heads down with regard to the election and didn't involve themselves with anything in respect to the aftermath of the election. And we're hoping to not be too visible 
Paul Smith from the Georgetown University Law Center observed. Well, now they're starting to gather momentum and the very conservative majority of the court is uh, headed in the direction of an absolutely blockbuster term next year. But first things first, as the court has to dispose of its 26 outstanding merits cases, uh, the late Ginsburg called June the flood season for the court's frantic uh, finish when the uh, most contentious issues are typically resolved. Draft opinions are circulated and finalized among chambers. Internal tensions among the justices is at its highest, reflected in the often harshly worded dissents by those on the losing side. Well, much of the focus will be on uh, Barrett, uh, President Trump's third high court appointment, which uh, solidified the 6-3 conservative majority. She has yet to reveal her hand with regard to issues uh, that are likely to come up in the most closely watched cases, and her jurisprudence will likely be a work in progress. Well, a fight to the finish. Um, among the cases expected to be decided in the coming days with regard to religious freedom, Fulton versus Philadelphia, whether the city can end a social service contract with a Catholic charity that refuses to screen same-sex couples as potential foster parents. The taxpayer-funded religious-affiliated agency asserts its religious liberty rights, but the city calls it discrimination against a protected class. Also in healthcare, California versus Texas, the future of the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, this is the court's third challenge of the decade-old law, and it seems likely to survive again, at least in some part. A coalition of states led by Texas is challenging a key provision, the so-called individual mandate, requiring a tax penalty for Americans who choose not to purchase health insurance. Congress in 2017 eliminated any penalty, and the question now is, can that provision and the entire law itself still stand? With regard to voting rights, there's Bronovich versus Arizona Democratic National Committee. The challenge uh, to two provisions of Arizona's voting laws, which lower courts found racially discriminatory against blacks, Hispanics and Native Americans. The law remains in effect amid the large challenge and would prohibit so-called ballot harvesting, absentee ballot collection by third parties and the counting of ballots cast at the wrong polling precinct. With regard to antitrust law, NC2A versus Alston, uh, whether the NC2A is uh, illegally capping education-based benefits, specifically whether amateurism rules limiting the amount of education-related aid that student-athletes can receive violate federal antitrust law. They're going to be deciding on free speech and association, Thomas More Law Center and Americans for Prosperity and uh, and Foundation versus Rodriguez, private nonprofits and charitable trusts challenge California's major donor disclosure requirements, arguing they burden a group's non-electoral Uh, expressive association rights. One of the group's filing suit was founded by the conservative Koch brothers. Student speech, and again, we're talking about uh, decisions that will be issued by the U.S. Supreme Court, this month being heavy uh, with decision-making. Mahoney Area School District versus BL, that's a free speech rights of juvenile students when expressing off-campus. Brandy Levi, a JV high school cheerleader, was kicked off the team for posting vulgar language and images on Snapchat, angrily expressing her disappointment for not making the varsity team. Can she be held accountable for that by being kicked off the squad? There's also the retirement watch. The Supreme Court was a major 2020 political campaign issue with Barrett's contentious Supreme Court confirmation fight coming just days before the November election. You'll remember. Well, many progressives expressed quiet disappointment that Ginsburg had not heeded calls to retire when President Obama was in office, giving Trump another legacy-making high court nomination that cemented the court's right uh, leanings. Well, now with President Biden in office, many Democrats are openly urging the court's oldest member, Stephen Breyer, who turns 83 in August, to leave the bench and no waiting. 
Freshman Representative uh, Mondaire Jones is among those urging Breyer to uh, step aside, saying it's necessary to ensure his seat would be filled with another liberal justice. Uh, Those two words actually don't belong together. If you're talking about a Supreme Court justice, whether you are personally liberal or conservative should not matter. But liberal and conservative apply to how you approach the Constitution. If you see it as a living, breathing document that is essentially meaningless and you can apply to it whatever the uh, particular political norms of the day, well, that, I suppose, would make a liberal justice. Uh, But those who are... um, uh, traditionalists and believe the constitutions and the words in it have actual historic meaning. And if you don't like the meaning, it should be amended. That, I suppose, would be considered a conservative justice, but it should not be one or the other. They should be committed to interpreting the constitution as written and encouraging other branches of government to amend it if they don't like the outcome or the language of the Constitution. That said, many progressives are touting Biden's promise on the campaign trail to name an African-American woman to the Supreme Court if elected, eager to see if fulfilling uh, that would happen and to see it to happen quickly. Breyer, for his part, has, no, has not signaled his plan to retire. Uh, he vaguely offered these thoughts in December when asked by a Slate magazine. I mean, eventually I'll retire. Sure, I will. And it's hard to know exactly when. End quote. That has uh, frustrated some liberals to no end. Well, the president, for his part, is seeking to quell progressive impatience over the court's current ideological makeup. He's created a special commission on the Supreme Court that will examine whether to increase the number of justices by as many as four and whether to impose judicial term limits, a report but no recommendations from the panel is due in November. Justice Breyer is, in remarks last month, rather, pushed back on the suggestion, saying that the court is guided by legal principle, not politics. He added that partisan polarization in government has fueled the belief that judges are too driven only by politics and that court packing can only feed that perception, further eroding the trust in the courts. So we'll see what uh, what actually happens. Join us uh, here tomorrow on the program. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.